Welcome to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. The interview for this podcast was conducted on the 14th of March, 2016. This podcast series is a product of the Committee on International Environmental Law of the American branch of the International Law Association. It's co-sponsored by the University of South Dakota School of Law. My name is Mayanna Dillinger. I am an Associate Professor of Law with the University of South Dakota School of Law. I research and write on issues of national and international environmental law and how these issues intersect with business aspects. Today, I have the pleasure and honor of interviewing Gabrielle Hecht, Professor of History at the University of Michigan. She's the author of two award-winning books, The Radiance of France, Nuclear Power and National Identity After World War II, first published by MIT Press in 1998 and reissued in 2009, and Being Nuclear, Africans and the Global Uranium Trade, which appeared in 2012. She also authored the article, Does Africa Really Want Yesterday's Future?, published by the African Technopolitan in 2015. Professor Hecht, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so we've been talking about nuclear energy here for this past uh, couple of podcasts, and this is the third in the series. You're an expert on France and nuclear power. Let's start by taking a look at France in this context. Why, in your opinion, was nuclear energy for such a long time uh, such a big source of national pride for France? And do you think this is still the case? Well, I think in so France turned to nuclear energy after World War II, and uh, it had a history uh, behind this. Um, it had produced a number of very important nuclear physicists who had uh, contributed to the discovery of fission and 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 things like this. Um, so. Uh, it was seen as a as a scientific strength uh, of the nation, and you know after World War II was a, obviously a difficult time for France, having been occupied by Germany, uh, needed to rebuild, but it also it needed to rebuild its infrastructure, but it also needed to rebuild its self image. Particularly, a, a, another aspect of the context here is that, of course, France was also an imperial power, but its hold on empire was also declining, weakening. So it was clear that in order for France to remain or re-become a global power, it would need other sources of geopolitical legitimacy. So that's one way to understand why France turned uh, to a scientific nuclear program so quickly after the war. Um, and uh, as I wrote in my first book, that scientific program rather rapidly got taken over for military ends. And particularly once President de Gaulle came into power, France really developed a whole nuclear arsenal. So, you know, as a system, as a technology, nuclear technology became very important to how France saw its geopolitical place, you know, in the world, within Europe, with respect to the United States as a country that is in between the United States and the Soviet Union and so on. Um, but then they also quite rapidly developed a civilian nuclear power plant, a nuclear power program, excuse me. And 
you know, that was for a number of related reasons, some of which had also to do with national pride and some of which had to do with energy needs and this kind of desire to be self-sufficient, whatever that means, mm-hmm. <laughs> on the energy front. So there were a number of factors in combination that led to the growth of the nuclear power program. And as you already um, talked about a little bit uh, in France, the both the civilian and the military usages of nuclear power have been uh, closely intertwined. Can you elaborate a little bit on on why that is and if that's still the case? Sure. So this goes back really to 19, the 1950s, uh, 1954 in particular, when France had been declaring at the UN and in various other forums that it would never build a nuclear bomb. And part of this was through the leadership of the, the first scientist who was the head of the French Atomic Energy Commission, uh, Frédéric Joliot-Curie, who was a communist and who had himself declared that he would never participate in, in building a, a, an atomic bomb that could be used against the Soviet Union or any other power. So that was the official stance that France had in the early to mid-1950s. But, you know, no nuclear... Well, no, I shouldn't say that, but many of the early nuclear power programs originated from military nuclear programs, and mm-hmm. France was no exception on this re- in this regard. So there was this kind of infamous meeting or famous meeting in 1954 when the engineers who were in charge of the French nuclear power program were wanting to build a reactor that would, among, that would be a prototype for a nuclear energy uh, and a nuclear power plant, but that would also produce weapons-grade plutonium, which happens in the core of this particular design of reactor. Mm -hmm. And they went to the French prime minister at the time, Pierre Mendes France, and and kind of laid out their plan, but he did not want to make a decision in favor of building a nuclear uh, bomb. So they explained to him that he didn't actually have to make a decision, that he could give the go-ahead for this reactor that ran on natural uranium and was cooled by carbon dioxide gas and and moderated by graphite, and that this reactor would be a very legitimate prototype for a a power plant, but that it would also produce weapons-grade plutonium. And so he gave the go-ahead for this, and for several years, that was the official line, was that these first, and it ended up being three of these reactors that went up at Marcoul, um, that these reactors were ostensibly prototypes for a civilian program, but the way that they were operated and optimized was to maximize their production of weapons-grade plutonium. So from the beginning, the first, the first generation, if you will, of French nuclear power plants were based on this design that had a dual purpose. And I might add that this was a design that the French uh, exported to Israel and mm-hmm. formed the basis of their first nuclear power plant as well. Mm-hmm. It, does that present any, or is that perceived to present any security threats as in, you know, there's been a lot of recent terrorist attacks in France, for instance. So does the fact that France has uh, nuclear power, does that present an additional concern uh, regarding the use of nuclear power in France towards the general public or or what is that? Well, yeah, there are a couple, there are a couple of ways to go at that question. So the, the first thing I should say, just as a follow-on to, to what I had just said, uh, mm-hmm. is that... 
the reactors in question, so these are natural uranium reactors. They're called, the, the whole line of reactors is called gas graphite reactors. Um, those reactors are not operational anymore. Okay. Um, so France built three of them that were really dedicated to weapons-grade plutonium. And then uh, it built another half dozen um, that were primarily used for uh, producing electric power. Okay. But all of those reactors, all of the gas graphite reactors have now shut down. So in within the civilian, uh, within EDF, Electricité de France, the, the national utility, mm -hmm. within their park of reactors, there are no operating gas graphite reactors that are optimized for weapons grade material. Okay. Now, all of that said, mm -hmm. you know, does France's, you know, because France, as I'm sure your listeners have already heard from other people, France gets something like 75% of its electricity from nuclear power in any given year. Right. So it has, you know, the highest shall we say, concentration of nuclear power plants in the, anywhere in the world. So does this present security concerns, um, particularly when we think about terrorist attacks? Well, yes, of course it does. And um, there have been a number of anti-nuclear demonstrations, pranks, if you will, that show that security is not what we might hope it would be. You know, there have been drones that have been flown over uh, military installations right. and nuclear power plants. Nobody, you know, I mean, I haven't tracked that story really carefully, but sure. the last I heard, nobody knew where these drones were coming from. I think it was Greenpeace staged one demonstration where they broke into a reactor and were able to kind of hang a banner from it. Mm -hmm. uh, various other demonstrators have been able to do that. And they've done it, you know, not because they were attacking the nuclear power plants, but to kind of show that it was not as difficult to do as one might expect. So that, I think, does raise concerns, you know, in the government and, and in the public. Uh, what they're actually doing about it is a little bit hard to tell right now. Yeah, but so as you're seeing it, uh, they could step up their security in relation to these power plants, as may also be the case in relation to other countries. I'm not saying it's just France. Sure. Yeah, and and you know, and I don't know what they have done in the last few years to you know, I don't, I'm not privy to their security plans, so right. I don't, I don't know what they've done to address these concerns. But they, you know, there's certainly concerns, and it's pretty hard to imagine that any security plan would be completely reliable, right? I mean, that's just. <laughs> that's yeah. just not the case so. apparently it's not if they've been able to hang banners from these plants but so then that's one issue probably uh, the bigger issue i think for many people is uh, whether or not this is realistic but sort of the fear of nuclear power in general that um, accidents such as uh, that of Ch uh, in chernobyl could happen in france or other places in the world do you see that as, I mean, in other words, does the French government look at the use of nuclear power in France as acceptably safe given such historic events? And also, as we heard from Dr. Cobb in a previous podcast, um, all other types of older energy uh, uses such as uh, coal or uh, oil also have some, you know, a lot of health effects actually more broadly seen. But so if you compare nuclear power to other traditional types of energy, what what do you think the health and safety concerns are? Well, you asked several questions there, so maybe mm -hmm. I can take them one at a time. Sure. Um, and uh, yeah, so so you know, the first question, you know, what? How does the French government see the security of its plants? Uh, that's a really, in and of itself, a very complicated question because, mm -hmm. you know, as you know, the government isn't a single thing. Right. Right. So you have 
the president, the executive, you know, you have EDF, the utility, which is part of the state. It's part of the French state. They have one view. You have the ASN, the, the, the nuclear security, uh, nuclear safety authority that does the inspections, safety inspections of the, on the plants. And they have found quite a few problems with existing plants and especially plants that are applying for renewal of their license and, and life extensions. And they have also found very significant problems with the plant that is currently under construction in Flamanville, um, and notably with the steel pressure vessel mm-hmm. um, and the, the kind of structural, their structural issues with, with that steel. And that is, an, as far as I know, still an unresolved issue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the nuclear safety regulator is saying, you know, no. <laughs> These plants are, many of these plants are not actually up to snuff, and a lot of money has to be invested to bring their safety even up to the standards that we would like to see uh, as, you know, in a kind of post-Fukushima world. And that's the, you know, I mean, this is the regulator who is fundamentally pro-nuclear power, but they're saying, this is not, you know, we're, we're not there yet. Right. Um, and then you have another uh, body, um, the IRSN, uh, which looks at uh, radiation protection and, and health issues. And, you know, they've issued a number of reports that show that there are significant improvements that can be made on a variety of fronts. You know, I mean, nuclear safety is a dynamic thing, and it's, you, you know, there, there are no guarantees. Um, right. And so when you hear people making guarantees, you should be suspicious because, you know, that there, there just isn't any such thing. Now, with respect to comparison with other industries, so, you know, that's, a, that's always an interesting thing to think about. Uh, and I think that there are several issues here. One is... That yes, you know, many energy industries are very dirty and have health and environmental implications that are much more immediate mm-hmm. uh, and immediately bad um, than what you might see from the nuclear industry, at least from the nuclear industry in France, you know, as it's operated in France. But that's a pretty low bar to set. You know, saying that, you know, that, oh, well, you know, it's cleaner on a day-to-day basis than oil or coal. <laughs> Right. is not really saying very much, you know, so just because oil is dirtier doesn't mean that, that, you know, nuclear power is not, uh, does not have health and safety concerns. Right. Um, so that's kind of, you know, that's, that's one issue. And then the other issue is the temporal issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, certainly, I mean, look, you know, we can see what coal is doing to our climate, coal and oil are doing to our climate. So that's one kind of temporal issue. But assuming that we even survive the current climate crisis, mm-hmm. you know, nuclear presents a whole other kind of temporal issue. We're talking about, you know, scales of thousands of years of, of material that there is currently not a great solution for disposing of. Right, and I think nobody is saying that nuclear power is um, is perfect, but to the best of our uh, technological and scientific right now, might you see it, or do you think the French or other governments see it as sort of at least a you know a temporal bridge until a, a, a cleaner energy future? Because we just don't have enough you know solar energy yet, or you know the batteries to store solar energy or wind energy. 
Well, there are two questions there. One is the question of how governments are seeing it and, and promoting it. And then there's a question of how I see it. And those are two very different questions. <laughs> okay. So let us so, hear. Yes, of course, there are plenty of governments that are promoting, you know, and especially in China, right? And, yes. and, and other places, uh, India, you know, mm -hmm. that's where the biggest growth in nuclear power is happening. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, they're, that's, how they're, that's how they're promoting it. You know, do I think that it's an adequate temporal bridge? Uh, no, I don't, because I think that, you know, it takes the Chinese have managed to build nuclear power plants in record time. This should not be a source of comfort. This should be a source of worry. Mm -hmm. um, you know, nuclear power plants take a long time to build and they take a long time to build safely, uh, to build safe ones. And, uh, and, you know, shortcuts are generally a really pretty bad idea. We've seen evidence of this in the past. You know, if you look at the reactors that are, there are reactors under construction now that, you know, the one in Finland is nine years behind schedule. And I think uh, certainly billions of euros over budget. I don't know how many billions at this point, but several. Mm -hmm. You know, the same can be said for the one that's under construction in Flamanville now. You know, there are other reactors around the world that are also taking a long time so that, you know, it, nuclear power is not a quick fix to the climate uh, crisis. It's not even a mediumly quick fix to the to the climate crisis. You know, I, there have been plenty of studies showing that other forms of energy could ramp up much more, much, much more quickly. The problem is whether governments and businesses are willing to accept a distributed energy system. You know. Yeah. What do you mean by that, a distributed energy system? What I mean by that is an energy system, uh, energy systems that are not necessarily controlled by large-scale multinational corporations, you know, energy systems that are distributed amongst, like, solar solar panels, right, mm -hmm. that, uh, mm -hmm. that are distributed amongst users and that are operated by users or by much smaller companies, right. uh, where, you know, the, the question is not how much profit is you know, a, a large company going to make over this energy system, but, you know, is our people going to actually get the energy that they need for, you know, basic survival? Right. So on the one hand, it sounds like you're saying a lot of this is uh, sort of uh, profit-driven, corporate-controlled, but you also did touch uh, quite a bit on, at least in France, sort of the top-down uh, government-heavy mm -hmm. system that was developed there. So uh, sort of, I guess, going back to France, which I think a lot of people see sort of as the forerunner in all of this, Can you talk a little bit about how uh, that aspect developed? So I think your book says, and other sources too, that in France it was very government regulated. How did that situation then change to be more, perhaps more uh, company run in other countries? Well, in France, it's very difficult to distinguish clearly between the companies that are running the nuclear industry and the state because the companies are state owned but they actually do also function as separate companies. Okay. So that kind of government capital distinction mm -hmm. in France doesn't work that well. Okay. And in other countries I would suggest that it works less well than might initially appear to be the case. You know, so in in I mean and this gets at some of those liability questions. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in many places Well, I mean, in all places that I know of, you know, if something like Fukushima happens, it is ultimately the government that pays for the cleanup. Right. And that means that an unbelievable percentage of the cost of having this energy is 
on the state and on the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't see that unless and until there's a big accident. But there have been several of these big accidents right now. Mm-hmm. The last estimates I saw of Fukushima were, you know, so initially right after the right after the, the three Fukushima uh, meltdowns, they were saying, oh, it's going to take 40 years to clean up. You know, now they're saying, you know, it's going to take a century to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. And clean up, you know, there's then we can ask, well, what does that mean, clean up, right? right? right I mean, what's, right. The, the stuff doesn't go away. You know, you've, we've probably all seen these, you know, thousands upon thousands of bags of contaminated dirt that are just sitting there, uh, you know, in the in Fukushima prefecture with no place to go. Mm-hmm. And then you have a flood and the bags burst open and they get, you know, the contamination gets spread out, you know, again, which has happened. Um, so... You know, when you have, and you don't have any, there are no private insurers that are willing to insure the nuclear industry. Um, At least they put caps on the the coverage, to my understanding. Yeah, I don't, I, I mean, the, 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 the caps to the coverage, as far as I know, are national caps. Okay. You know, what I would say is that you have a, here what you have a really classic case of is the profits being corporatized and the risks are socialized. And that is a cliche, but it is a cliche that, that really is applicable to the nuclear industry, I think, um, in, a ver- in some very striking ways. That's a great way of, of putting it. What does the general public, to the best of your knowledge, uh, think about this issue? In other words, in France or in the USA, if you know, are more people for or against nuclear power? And um, does the general public's opinion about this have any kind of say in government decision making? Well, you know... There are always polls, and polls can show you many different kinds of things. Um, and I don't think that there is really a good answer for what does the general public think as a kind of big question. Um, I think that in France, for example, there are many, many mixed opinions. Mm. Um, people like their, uh, you know, like the access to, to electric power. Of course, that's kind of obvious. Um, but they are getting more and more concerned with what kinds of risks, both in terms of nuclear power safety and, you know, terrorist threats there might be. They're also getting more concerned with climate. Mm-hmm. I think you're going to find people in different parts of the country, even in different communities, have very different takes on this question. You know, people who live around nuclear power plants tend to rather be in favor of them. And, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. One is that EDF is very, very good at at public relations and at, you know, bringing communities in and showing them around the plants and and things like that. Another is that there is a so-called tax that EDF pays to local communities so that if you go to any of these villages that are housing nuclear power plants, you know, you're going to see incredible modern facilities, right? Great sporting facilities, swimming pools, you know, mm-hmm. beautiful schools, all of this mm-hmm. kind of thing. So, you know, that they get a lot of those concrete benefits mm-hmm. directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, uh, labor in these areas, uh, you know, is strongly dependent on the operation of the nuclear power plant. So you'll see a lot of support right around the nuclear power plants. And where you see more concern is away from the plants. And, you know, this creates this really 
un, I don't know how one can go about resolving this issue, but it creates this issue where the people who live near near these facilities, you know, say, well, we don't want outsiders coming in and demonstrating. The so-called outsiders are saying, well, this is our country too, and mm-hmm. any you know, if there is a problem, it's going to affect us too. You know, it might affect you more, but it's still going to affect us. And there are, you know, bigger issues, political, technological, environmental issues at stake that mean that that, that we should oppose this. So, you know, I think France, like the United States, is becoming more divisive over time. Right. Um, and I think that you see those divisions around this issue. Interesting. Yeah, so then uh, let's shift a little bit to talk about Africa. Uh, you mm-hmm. also wrote an article called Does Africa Really Want Yesterday's Future? Mm-hmm. Um, and in that you write that several African nations are, in spite the concerns you just listed, also eager to introduce nuclear power in order to be able to meet increasing energy demands on that continent. So what are some of the potential similar problems in relation to nuclear power in Africa? And what is the, as far as you know, the opinion of the general public uh, towards this issue in various African nations? Yeah, well, so, you know, the, the nations that were, that will, that, that should, that top the list here <laughs> are South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana, uh, Egypt, I think Algeria, maybe But, you know, South Africa, of all of these, South Africa is very much at the top of the list because it is the one country that already has a nuclear power plant. Mm-hmm. And But South Africa is considering building more nuclear power plants. And in fact, it's issued a call for tenders for nine new nuclear power plants. Now, this cannot be seen in isolation of world politics. There have been, uh, there, there is a one particular memorandum of understanding that has been signed between Russia and South Africa, where it's pretty clear that, you know, the Russians, uh, you know, so have solicited South African business and want to sell South Africa these nine nuclear power plants. The call for tenders is meant to get proposals from other suppliers, China, the U.S., France, Korea. Um, it. But, you know, South Africa has been, South African politics has been roiled by this very question uh, because there are questions of financing. So who's going to pay for this? And is this really the kind of capital investment that the South African government should be making at this time? Mm. You know, given these long lead times, Mm -hmm. uh, construction times, you know, a lot of people question whether this is really the best way for South Africa to invest funds. And in fact, the finance minister last year, Jacob Zuma, the the prime minister, fired his finance minister for saying South Africa could never afford more than two nuclear power plants. And even that, I'm not sure we can afford. And Zuma did not like this one little bit because he really liked the prospect of doing this deal with the Russians. And so he Mm. fired him Mm -hmm. and, you know, he, and, and the South African, I mean, it's not all about nuclear, but ever since then, the South African economy has kind of been in free fall for the last few months. Um, So, you know, it's not just protesters who are saying this is not an affordable solution. It's, you know, people, you know, very serious people with, you know, who at least at one point had significant amounts of power, like, like the finance minister, So, 
you know, there are there is definitely civil society action against the building of nuclear capacity in South Africa. There is also a lot of pressure in favor of the building of nuclear capacity in South Africa from businesses who, you know, who would who would certainly profit from it. So it's a very fluid situation. And, you know, the question of, of regulation is really real. There's a pretty good reason for thinking that South Africa's current nuclear regulator, the National Nuclear Regulator, is already understaffed with, you know, just a few sites to look at. I mean, basically, there's, you know, one, one power producing plant, a pair of plants, pair of reactors uh, near Cape Town. And then there's the research site in Pelindaba, outside of Pretoria mm-hmm. and Johannesburg, you know, and then there's the kind of medical radiation, various other things that the National Nuclear Regulator has to look at, uh, as well as mining, uranium mining, which is recently under the purview of the regulator. And they're, you know, from all accounts, they're, they, they can't even handle that amount because they're understaffed, like regulators everywhere. I mean, I, right. I guess that is a general problem, right, that regulators are understaffed and underpaid. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the question of, of, of what it would take for South Africa, which is, you know, a pretty industrialized country to ramp up to the point of being able to produce a reliable uh, regulatory system that could support more nuclear power plants, that the amount of investment required is just, it's mind boggling. And, and many people think, well, you know, maybe that would be best spent on solar and wind, which are in plentiful supply in South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> and so. actually, when you're talking about the costs uh, of building these and sort of the industrial uh, development of various nations, uh, Michael Snyder's position in a previous podcast was that uh, nuclear power hasn't actually helped industry sort of, you know, gain a better foothold or, you know, become, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the industries in certain nations such as France hasn't, haven't actually become more well-to-do because of nuclear power. So it hasn't helped them financially. Is that the case, uh, the same case in Africa, do you know? Well, I mean, there isn't enough uh, experience, True. you know, to, True. to really be able to say that. And, you know, I, I think that's a pretty extreme ca- case to make, even in the case of France. I mean, I think actually a lot of French industry is built on the backs of the nuclear power industry. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's the nuclear power in France is still in huge financial trouble right now. I mean, Areva is falling apart. You know, they're, 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 the press is full of, of, of the financial troubles that they're having. So, you know, it's not that it's good for France financially, but I think it would be an exaggeration to say that that it has not, that nuclear power has not benefited the French economy. I, I mean, I think it clearly has. It's just not continuing to do so. Right. Continuing nuclear power is not going to benefit the French economy in I the see. long run. I see. Uh, but in the past, it certainly has. You think it has, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. What are some of the pot- uh, the possible potential problems in relation to non-financial issues, such as social, health, and economic problems uh, in associated with uranium mining in Africa? Oh, well, those are huge. So I wrote a book about that, too. (laughs) um, So during the Cold War, African sources were accounted for somewhere in any given year between 20 and 50 percent of the Western world's, the capitalist world's uh, uranium supply. And the main producers at at the beginning uh, of this period were talking about the Congo. Um, but after independence, the, the Congolese uh, mines shut down. And so then at that point, we're talking about South Africa, 
Namibia starting in the 1970s, France and Madagascar, I mean, I'm sorry, Gabon and Madagascar supplying uh, uranium to France starting in the 1950s, Niger starting in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, since, since then, so in the last decade or two, there have been a few new mines and new mining countries coming on board, particularly Malawi. So, and, and, you know, these mines are very different. They're, you know, some of them are underground, some of them are open cast mines, um, so they present different kinds of health problems. But part of, part of what I argued in my second book on this, um, which is called Being Nuclear Africans in the Global Uranium Trade, is that in all of these places, uranium mining for a very long time was not treated as a nuclear activity. And so what I mean by that is that it was not monitored, health and environmental concerns were monitored the way they would be monitored for any other mining industry rather than for a nuclear industry. So there was no nuclear regulator that surveyed the mines. It was up to companies to voluntarily uh, record radiation exposures uh, and radon exposures for their miners, which some companies did and some companies didn't. But very, uh, pretty much no company except for Rossing in Namibia actually conveyed the results of its monitoring to the workers. So workers themselves did not know what they had been exposed to in many of these places. And then, of course, there's the kind of ongoing issue of tailings. Uh, what happens, you know, once these companies stop mining? Mm-hmm. And that is a massive issue in South Africa in particular right now. Um, I can talk more about that if you want, or we can move on to something else. But mm-hmm. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, if you would. Yeah. Well, so the South African mine, so, you know, the South African economy is built on gold. Um, Gold was discovered there in the 1880s, and South Africa rapidly became the biggest gold supplier in the world. Mm -hmm. The uranium in South Africa is found in the same ore matrix as the gold. Mm -hmm. So after World War II, when the Americans were looking for uranium, the South Africans realized that they had a lot of it just sitting in these enormous gold tailings piles that were all around the Rand in central South Africa, the Vidvatersrand, which is the the sort of name of the region where all this gold mining takes place. Mm -hmm. So these tailings piles were remined for uranium, and then new shafts were dug, and, you know, uranium and gold were, were, were extracted from these mines. And, uh, you know, and then mines would shut down once they became unprofitable. And uh, there are kind of two issues that result from this. Um, One is that there are still these enormous tailings piles kind of around Johannesburg, the greater Johannesburg area, Mm -hmm. many of which are uncapped Mm -hmm. and which blow. uh, So, you know, yes, these might be piles of waste, but they still contain a significant enough quantities of uranium and other radioactive particles um, to be harmful. And when the winds blow in the winter, they blow this dust all over, you know, certain communities. So that there are communities that are regularly exposed, breathe in radioactive dust. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of of press coverage of this. That's one issue. Mm -hmm. And then the other issue is the issue of acid mine drainage. Um, So these mines... Uh, were very, very deep, a lot of them. And what that meant was that they went below the water table. And so in order to be able to work in them, the mining companies would have to pump the water out so that workers could actually get into the shafts. Well, once they shut down, of course, they stop pumping the water out and the groundwater comes back into these mines. But now these are worked mines that have 
um, uh, you know, exposed rock and minerals and all kinds of things. And so as the water flows into and then, of course, through the mines, it picks up uh, this, uh, you know, these heavy metals. It reacts with the pyrite in the rock to produce sulfuric acid. So now you have this water that is filtering into uh, groundwater um, mm. and throughout the region that is extremely acidic, mm-hmm. uh, with a pH as low as 2, uh, keeping in mind that the neutral pH is 7. And we can drink things that are more acid than that, but, but at, at a pH of 2, uh, lots of microorganisms die, and it's not, it, it's not healthy for people to drink water at a pH of 2 mm-hmm. or bathe themselves in it. Um, and uh, because the water is so acidic, heavy metals dissolve in it more readily. So uranium and other heavy metals, arsenic, I mean, all kinds of, of, of you know, dangerous uh, stuff, mm-hmm. dissolves in this water, which again gets transported, you know, throughout the, throughout the region and, uh, and contaminates ground, groundwater all over, all over Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. So several different, both um, financial and health-related, uh, even pollution-related problems that uh, exist, apparently, as you've mentioned it, in Africa and potentially beyond. I can't help thinking, though, uh, to play devil's advocate a tiny little bit, what would you say to people in, for instance, in some African nations or in China that, you know, that really truly do have a huge energy need and perhaps not quite yet any other ways of, of satisfying that than either through uh, traditional energy or through uh, nuclear power, which also is traditional energy. Um, mm. what, what do you say about that argument, that they need energy here now? What are they to do? Oh, they do need energy here now, but nuclear does not provide energy here now. <laughs> well, they do, though, as you said, have some plans underway that yeah. they... You know, yeah, sort of I mean, I, you know, I, I, think, I, I think there are different issues in different places. Mm. Um, and, you know, the, the kinds of issues that obtain in China, I, I can't speak to. I'm not a specialist on the region. Right. Um, so you know, let's you know, let's leave leave that for somebody else to comment sure, on. I would say, sure. um, but the kinds of issues that that obtain in the African countries that I know the best, um, you know, I would say yes, absolutely, they need uh, many sources of energy now. But uh, centralized nuclear power is not the best way to do that. You know, I think uh, solar and wind um, are cheaper, faster. Uh, more amenable to community uh, uh, maintenance um, because the maintenance issues are always important, um, and you know, and that that would be a, a better way to invest state money. If state money is going to get invested in energy uh, or any kind of money would get invested in energy, that strikes me as as being a solution that would get energy to communities faster and cheaper and more safely. Interesting. Thank you so very much for your comments. You're welcome. Thank you for uh, for your great questions. Great, thanks. <laughs> okay. Thank you for listening to the Global Energy and Environmental Law Podcast. In this podcast, I interviewed award-winning author Gabrielle Hecht, professor of history at the University of Michigan. 